It's been said that maybe the most practical book in all the New Testament is uh, the letter from James. James is trying to create a certain type of church. And so James talks about judging each other with mercy. He talks about the power of our tongues. He talks about how we shouldn't use our mouth to put people down or gossip. He talks about how faith is something that leads us into action. And how we shouldn't treat people better or worse based on things like how much money is in their bank account. And I want to read for you the ending of James's letter. It kind of seems like it ends abruptly, but this is how James ends the letter. He says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And that's it. That's how James ends his letter. He says that and then he kind of drops the mic and walks away. And some people think that James's letter ends kind of abruptly, but when you read the letter in light of that ending, it kind of makes it make sense. Because this is what James has been doing the entire book. James is trying to create a community of faith, communities of faith, that function a little bit like a mirror. He wants churches to be the kind of places who reflect the reality that each of us are blind to in our own lives. And I think the problem for us tends to be that we look into mirrors, but that we look into the wrong kind of mirrors. So that if you're rich and you come to James's church, you might have been surprised that people don't treat you better because of your status. James is working to help the church be a mirror that reflects a better reality. I've heard a psychological theory that talks about how each of us have a blind self. It's the part of ourself that people around us can see, but we are blind to. Which makes you kind of think, wouldn't it be nice to have people in your life who you could trust to tell you what that looks like about yourself? The parts of yourself that you're blind to? When, uh, when I decided I was going to go off to graduate school uh, for my education... Uh, one of the place that I decided to go to was Abilene Christian University. And one of the reasons I wanted to go there was that there was a professor there named Dr. Charles Seibert, uh, who was well-known. Dr. Seibert didn't have a Ph.D. He had a, a lesser degree, a doctor of ministry, which was considered lesser. But that didn't mean that he was respected any less. Dr. Seibert was known not just in Abilene, but throughout the Brotherhood, as being a kind of church doctor. Churches around the country, whenever they were having an issue or a conflict, Dr. Seibert was one of the most popular people to call in as a consultant. And essentially he would arrive at sick churches and he had a remarkable record of helping to make them whole again. Which probably makes you wonder, how did he do that? You know, what, what does a church doctor do? What kind of magic touch did he have that others didn't have? Well, it was two summers ago that Dr. Seibert passed away. It was in July 2012. And 
I followed some of the eulogies online that were posted throughout the blogosphere from leaders at churches that he'd had an influence on. And, and let me tell you one of the things that people said over and over and over about Dr. Seibert. It was expressed in different ways, but invariably everyone all said that he was one of the only people who cared enough to, tell, to be honest with them. One of the only people that people would trust who cared enough about them to be honest with them. They could sense that he loved them and that he wanted the best for them. And sometimes it was painful to hear what he had to say to them. But that it was always what they needed to hear. And the only way he was able to do that was because he didn't need you or me to like him to be able to love you. Which maybe should make us think about that ending to James again. When James said, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Makes me kind of wonder, why is Dr. Seibert an outlier? Why isn't that the norm? I think if James were here in 2014 today... He would ask us why churches don't function like that more often. I'll tell you what I think. I think that, you know, the problem that I have in confronting other people, right, is that I want them to like me, right? And I get afraid that if I come across too harsh, they may not like me anymore. So that probably a lot of times I shy away from hard conversations. And whenever I'm tempted to do that, the real reason is that I want to be thought of as a loving person more than I want to be a loving person. Understand the difference? I think about people in my own life who have cared enough to me to say hard things to be about my life because they cared about me more as a person than they did about my immediate emotional state. And they weren't doing it to be a jerk. And they weren't trying to hurt my feelings. They were just trying to help me see myself better. To hold up a mirror. So that I could understand my blind self. It can actually be a gracious thing to confront someone else about their sin. So I was writing this sermon, I thought this would be a really uncomfortable part if I said somebody's name right now, right? Like, so we've gathered here this morning to confront you, Brother Cleve. Uh, no, no, that's not what we're doing. It can actually be, not that way, but it can actually be a gracious thing to be confronted about sin, right? So this morning we're going to begin a series of sermons doing just that. We're going to talk about the seven deadly sins. And we're going to allow ourselves to be confronted with the truth. That these sins aren't something to be toyed with. So what is exactly meant by the label deadly sins? 
Because we know that the nature of sin is that it gives birth to death, right? That's what James writes all the way back in James 1. When he says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, sin is inherently deadly. Why, again, are they called seven deadly sins? Well, they aren't deadly in the sense that they're beyond God's grace, love, and forgiveness. But I think of them in terms of... Thinking back to maybe like elementary or middle school math. Uh, when we were taught to reduce our fractions to the lowest common denominator. Right? In other words, these seven sins are the ones that we should come to view as primary. Or basic. They're the sins that it's almost like they give birth to other types of sins. They form the core of vices in human nature. It's like they're the basic roots of all evil. So this morning we're going to begin with the one that's maybe the most basic of all. Pride. Pride is puffed up, stiff-necked, and stuck up. It puts the me-first attitude into play wherever it goes. In the church, in the family, wherever it goes. And when we think of pride, maybe we think of people who are loud-mouthed and obnoxious. But in reality, pride can show itself in a variety of forms. It can appear calm and cool, but on the inside be very calculated. Pride blinds itself even to its own presence sometimes. I tend to think of pride as the forerunner of all sins. And it's especially the sin that we love to use to excuse ourselves of rightfully feeling guilty. To those of us who are tempted to overspend, pride whispers, you deserve it. Even though you may be maxed out on your credit cards, even though... There are other priorities for the money. Even though you are responsible for other people, you deserve it. Right? Pride whispers to the addict, I'll just go ahead. You you can stop anytime you want. Go ahead and indulge one more time. You can stop anytime you want. Pride whispers to the control freak, you're the only one good enough to be in charge. You're the only one who can manipulate that remote control just right. You're the only one who can navigate that map. You're the only one. Right? Pride whispers to the blamer. It's their fault. Right? It's your parents' fault. Or it's your wife's fault. Or it's your husband's fault. It's just, it's not, it's not you, it's them. Pride is great at keeping us from feeling any guilt, any remorse, any shame. It's our favorite sin for disabusing ourselves of rightfully feeling guilty. And it really all began, pride, with Satan in the first place. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us this, gives us this narrative, and it sounds like it's Satan. And he's saying... For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What an ego trip, right? Satan was the very first being to be a first class passenger on the pride ride. And God cast him out of his presence. And God does that to everybody who likes to take a trip on the pride ride. I want to talk about a few other passengers on the pride ride. Uh, Vanessa Vanity. She's extremely concerned about her appearance. But not only her appearance, how she's thought of by others. Everything must be just right about her to feel good about herself. And, and she gets so addicted to that feeling good about herself feeling that to feel even better, she tends to look down on other people who are not like her. Her justification, of course, is that she just wants to look nice. And it's entirely acceptable to want to look nice or to look your best. But pride requires Vanessa to be the most beautiful in the room. The stark truth is that Vanessa Vanity is more worried about what other people think about her than what God thinks about her. And because of this, she is a first class passenger on the pride ride. Other passengers. Marvin and Martha materialism. Martha loves to buy things. But not just anything, the best things. Martha wouldn't dream of buying something without a designer label. Dooney and Bjork, Dolce and Gabbana, whatever it is. And oh, your, your smartphone isn't an Apple iPhone? Oh, that's too bad for you. Right? And her husband, Marvin, he loves to brag about his brand new toy. A couple years ago, it was his brand new SUV. Last year, it was his brand new fishing boat. Now he's excited to tell everyone about his brand new ATV. And this couple, Marvin and Martha, they are miserable. But you wouldn't know it by how excitedly they talk about all their stuff. And then, of course, there's Bertha better than you. She is better than them all. Just ask her. In every way. Tell her an exciting story, she'll top it. Tell, tell her how you're hurting. And she'll try to make you feel like she's hurting even more. The main thing you should really take away from every encounter with Bertha is that she's just better than you. Pride makes us, I think, into all these people at one point or another. At one point or another, it seems like we, we put on these personalities. It's a disease inside you that causes other people to hurt. It's like a weed that winds its way through all the parts of your life. The simple alternative to pride, though is giving ourselves over to Christ and using the resources of the gospel 
to train ourselves to be more humble. The word humility comes from the word humus. You can still drop by the garden section of uh, Lowe's or Home Depot or Walmart and you'll see it. You can buy bags of humus. It's earth. It's like uh, soil with some compost in it. And to be, the idea is to be humble is to be as simple as being well grounded. Earthed, if you will. In the knowledge of who and what we are. That God made me and you. And that we took all of His blessings and we rebelled against Him in sin. And that that makes us sinners. And that now we find ourselves in need of His grace. The truth of that reality grounds us. That we are sinners saved by His grace. And it's about having a proper perspective about the world and our place in it. That I am made in the image of God, but that does not make me God. God is the Creator. He is the one who makes things good. And it's He that has made us, not we that have have made ourselves. And I think one of the challenges to this perspective, to having humility and developing humility, and working on becoming more humble people, is that it really comes from a sense of having a strong faith. And even having confidence in our faith and what we believe. And because of our faith, we can have confidence in what God has made us to be. Which I think creates an inherent tension for us. How do we tell the difference between confidence and arrogance? What's the difference between a bold faith and pride? One of the great thinkers of the last generation was a man named C.S. Lewis. I think he understood this tension. He said that in the gospel there was no simpering or sniveling. I can't do anything. But neither was there the pride that says, it's all about me. He, accept, he, he suggested a way to tell the difference between confidence and arrogance. And I like it. I just want to read this excerpt. He says, humility is present. When you have the ability to be the greatest architect in the world, to build the most beautiful cathedral that ever existed, so that people who saw it would weep tears of joy, and then, he adds, humility is the ability to be equally happy if it was your neighbor that built it. Humility is present if it's not all about us. Because you see, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's the voice of sobriety that reminds us that the whispers like, you deserve it, and you can stop anytime, or it's all their fault. Humility is the voice of sobriety that reminds us that those are lies from the pit of hell. Humility isn't about thinking less about yourself. It's, it's thinking of yourself less. And each of us has that, that blind self. 
You know, I, you know that what we talked about in the beginning. Each of us having this blind self, this part of ourselves that people around us can see, but that we're kind of blind to. And I think you can you can tell one sure thing about about pride. You can see it especially whenever anyone happens to be blessed with the kind of person who can hold up a mirror in love and show them how they really look. And if the response to that is anger, denial, malice, or being disagreeable, whenever that happens, I can, I can tell you, pride exists in that person. We should thank God for the people in our lives who have cared enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. And I think we should pray to God that we can rid ourselves of the deadly sin of pride. And that we can work with the resources of the gospel and remind ourselves of who we are. So that we can work to develop more humility. And not be given into pride. This morning we're going to have an invitation. If you feel the need to respond... You're welcome to come right now. Step out for God as we stand and as we sing.